Hello, and welcome back to Jokerman, podcast about Bob Dylan, the artist. And today, uh, as always, I'm joined by Ian, and your name is? My name is Evan. And uh, today, it, we're the, we're, we are Jokerman. We're the Jokerman. If we were a band, would we be Jokerman or the Jokerman? Definitely just Jokerman. Okay. Because I usually say the Jokerman in the descriptions for these. Maybe that's like right. the, that's the more, uh, the, the, that's how you would more gram- grammatically correct you would. Well, I guess it depends on like how we how we conceive of the title Joker Man uh, and then Joker Man. Whether like you know we are specifically just the Joker Man the same way that like you know um, that people are the Blues Brothers, for instance, or whether Joker Man is more like a a general title, um, you know, like um, like a guitarist or um, athlete or something. We are we are Joker Man. Oh, you mean like um, how seriously we take that title? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I I think Whether. that Joker men is some is something that we you know right now we're the, we're the only Joker men doing this the, a podcast. So until there's other Joker men who attempt what 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 we've done, we're the the Joker men. We are the Joker. Okay, that, but that jo- Joker men also yeah. We should stress that it's a anybody could be a Joker Joker man, and it's it's a gender neutral term because right. You know, as in mankind, you know, that that includes woman as well. <laughs> right. Joker, Joker women. I mean, you, you know, it's... Joker, Joker person. Joker folks, F-O-L-X. Yeah, Joker folks. <laughs> uh, welcome to Joker folks. Uh, today we're talking <laughs> about a live record. And uh, it's one that is, uh, I think... I think it's fair to say it's been basically banished to the dustbin of history in large part. Yeah, I think that I think the 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 proper term is much maligned. This is a this is a much maligned uh record, perhaps the most maligned album that Bob had put out up until this point, you know, give or take self-portrait perhaps. And just like that one, I think that it has been I think that it has been maligned a bit unfairly. Yeah. I without giving away our thoughts about this record. Um, I, I have to agree. I think it's a little bit unfair what people have said yeah. about this record. The all music review of Bob Dylan at Budokan is, uh, I think a little harsh. And I think that it's probably discouraged. It dissuaded many people from, from giving it a listen and from taking pleasure in, in what this disc set really this set of two discs a double album double lp mm-hmm. what it has to offer yeah yeah and i think that speaks well or, or speaks directly to the reason that jokerman exists uh, is is to kind of look back at bob's checkered past with a, a fresh set of eyes and think about how these albums have aged in the in the ensuing years which something like the All Music Review, for instance, obviously was written many years after the fact. But even since then, I think it's been you know probably a decade or more, and uh, and and so things have changed quite a bit just in the general kind of you know rock crit sphere. We've talked about like how the Grateful Dead has become 
such a respected, uh, universally beloved band after having been derided as like hippie bullshit for, uh, you know, almost all of my time existing in the kind of, you know, pitchfork rock crit uh, environment up until the last couple of years. And I think uh, I think Budokan also uh, is is well suited for this kind of critical reappraisal uh, in in the 2020 post rough and rowdy ways kind of era. Yeah, couldn't have said it better. Um, first, let's set the stage. Bob Dylan is in Japan. It's 1978. Street Legal hasn't even come out. Has not come out at this point. Yeah, exactly. This. Uh the the concert this is taken from is from I think February seventy eight something like that recorded yeah February twenty eighth and March first nineteen seventy eight and so Street Legal doesn't come out until a few months after that June fifteenth nineteen seventy eight so the, so the Street Legal songs had been written and some of them had been recorded um, but uh, but the, but the album. Uh, people weren't aware of, of what the next direction in Bob's career was going to be. The last studio album that, that you had gotten from him at this point would have been, uh, would have been Desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is this <laughs> this is clearly uh, a bit of a left turn from from where we last left off at the waning days of the Rolling Thunder review. Right. And Bob's in Japan. I can't stress and this Bob's enough. In Japan. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, have have you note, read the liner notes? Uh, I was just gonna. I was just gonna <laughs> say. I'd like to. I'd like to read the liner notes, uh, please, if if we can, uh, from from our our friends at BobDylan.com once again. Uh, Bob has a beautiful little message for us um, on uh, on on the album. I, I guess I don't know if it was printed on the inside of the gatefold or on an insert or whatever. But uh, Bob has this to say: The more I think about it, the more I realize what I left behind in Japan. My soul, my music, and that sweet girl in the geisha house. I wonder, does she remember me? If the people of Japan wish to know about me, they can hear this record. Also, they can hear my heart still beating in Kyoto at the Zen Rock Garden. Someday, I will be back to reclaim it. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> I guess Bob was really in a particular state of mind. Um, do you think, do you think he actually, uh, got himself a geisha? Uh, it's kind of, it sounds like it. He, he would have us think so, but he also wonders if she remembers him. So, uh, maybe, maybe he's, uh, maybe he's being coy. Uh, maybe, maybe he isn't. is being coy. I mean, it, maybe he isn't. Seems kind of weird. Um. Uh, that's a weird thing to see. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it is it's a little um, uh, I guess the the sort of uh, two dollar word term for it in these days would be like orientalist, uh, a little uh, bit of a exotic um, uh, over romanticization of uh, of the Far East. Well, you could say it's that, um, or you could just uh, think that maybe this is Bob freshly divorced putting something in the liner notes to make the ex jealous. That's uh, also a good, uh, also a good point. Yeah, this is, it does seem like Bob is trying to make it seem like he's doing sex, you know, doing well, <laughs> well. <laughs> in, in the liner notes. Yes. But in general, I think this whole like massive, cause this was part of a, I mean, besides just these, these particular shows in Japan, this was part of an enormous world tour with this like enormous, 
fat blown out band. Yeah, which is um, was sort of critically um mocked as being called the they called it the Alimony Tour, the right. and the the Las Vegas tour in reference to Las the Vegas tour. sort of uh overly ripe pr- uh playing and and uh, arrangements. Um another way you could think of this tour is the I'm actually laughing and this is good to me tour. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is actually fine and I'm having I'm actually really doing good I'm having fun. It's it's definitely a very different kind of like it's about as far away from the uh, Rolling Thunder Review project or whatever you want to call that uh, as as you can possibly get instead of the, you know, tight-knit kind of um, you know, folk um whatever kind of band with all the, um, you know, uh, acoustic guitars and violin and stuff. He's got this, uh, he's got the backing vocals here. Uh, he's got tons of horns. He's got the bongos. He's got, uh, the violin. He's got the organ and the electric piano. It, it's, it's you know, like every I, I actually, instrument under the sun. I kind of disagree with you there. I, I think it's on the contrary, uh, an amping up, uh, an extension the expansion pack to the Rolling Thunder aesthetic. Like he's only adding more things. He's only trying more. He's trying more and more weird uh, angles, um, throwing in some reggae, throwing in some disco. It's certainly not paring anything down. So I actually sort of think of this as the, uh, the Rolling Thunder aesthetic like turned up to 11 to a point where it actually kind of stops being recognizable. You're already seeing in hard rain, for instance, um, the last live record we talked about, uh, that record was the tail end of the rolling thunder tour. It was the second leg. And even visually we discussed how, um, the costume aspect of it was, was different than what you think of the iconic Rolling Thunder look as being, um, you know, the, the white face makeup and the Western wear, that was really what defined the, the first Rolling Thunder leg. And then the second leg of that tour, they start all wearing these sort of Lawrence of Arabia type head coverings. There's kind of more of a gypsy flair and... At this point, this band, which is different, but still has some of those elements, is kind of just one step further aesthetically. It's, yeah, I, I see what you mean uh, in terms of like the big, extremely done-up arrangements and stuff like that, and tons of instruments and players. Uh, that was true on Rolling Thunder, and that's that's true again here to a, to an even greater degree. Uh, but where 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 it's sort of the opposite of Rolling Thunder, I think, is is like. Remember, Rolling Thunder was like him and, and this group of people just like piled into a bus driving around New England and rolling into random towns and putting up flyers for a show that would be being being played that night in like a tiny little like, you know, um, community hall or something like that. It was it was it, it was uh, it was professional and put together, obviously, but it was also kind of ramshackle and deliberately anti-commercial. Um, it wasn't something that he was making money from. And that is kind of what the second part of the Rolling Thunder tour, especially, you know, the stuff that, that ended up getting translated into Hard Rain, 
that that's kind of what it lost, I think, or, or part mm-hmm. of the reason that it didn't succeed. Um, and so this is, you know, this this show and this tour is the very opposite of that Rolling Thunder anti-commerciality, right? He's these these arrangements are uh, you know super slick and put together and blown out, and he's touring all around the world and he's playing at these enormous stadiums and stuff. Yeah, like that. he didn't casually so, show up in Japan at that yeah, exactly. night he didn't, to play a yeah, show. Exactly, he didn't show up and just roll in and and throw a flyer up on the uh, up on the wall of the uh, subway or something, and then and then play a set later that night. Like this was this was really like the big kind of this was the big tour. This is the biggest tour since uh, since before the flood, which was the initial kind of comeback big arena sellout rock and roll show, um, and he had kind of let that go and and gone away from that consciously over the following five years. So. Um, so yeah, I, so yeah, I, I think from from like a Sonic uh, uh, standpoint uh, to, to to talk about Bob Dylan Sonics once again, yes. um, which we're gonna have to do on this record. There's no way around it. It is it is similar ish uh, to Rolling Thunder in, in, from that angle, but like from the just like the vibe and the spirit and the animating forces behind it. I think it's it really is like the complete opposite and that's i think that's also part of the reason why it has those kind of nicknames like the alimony tour right because bob is breaking up with sarah and uh and he is expected to uh start writing checks and maybe maybe he's going out on this enormous uh potentially uh, ill-conceived tour to uh you know to cash some money from japanese audiences that i don't know if he'd ever played in japan uh, up until this point is that you know i don't think he had um so yeah you know he's taken taking his show on the road and bringing it to yet as yet of untapped audiences who uh who might be willing to uh you know pay pay big money for a a tour that again uh, at the time might have seemed ill conceived although uh you know with with years of hindsight at this point i think uh we might have a somewhat more contrarian take at least i might we uh, might i think that the the way to best enjoy this record is by Easing up on that, uh, on on your urge, maybe uh, as a listener to to define this as, as some kind of cash grab, um, as as a cynical move. I think that the best way to enjoy this album is actually rather than um, focusing on that obvious motivating factor. Uh, is to re refocus on how these songs are being played and consider the playfulness and the the experimentation with the arrangements as uh as something of an evolutionary step for Bob as an artist in his relationship to his back catalog and understood that way this record kind of makes a lot more sense than it maybe did at the time when you compare this record to modern touring Bob, certain moments kind of stand out as being oddly prescient to to the way that he would operate for, as a as a touring artist in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that just like Street Legal, uh, for instance, was ultimate was a was a flawed kind of attempt, but ultimately successful in that it set the template for you know, how, how Bob would approach studio records, uh, you know, going forward into the eighties and throughout the rest of his career. I think, I think Budokan is really kind of the same thing. Um, in uh, looking, again, looking back on it in hindsight, like he is, 
he is, regardless of what your opinion is on these arrangements and, and this approach, and you know, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little, a little bit more. I'm actually quite fond of a lot of it. Um, regardless of what your opinion is about these these arrangements and this approach, he's still he's still willing to just throw everything he's done up until this point into the trash and start over completely fresh with a, you know, absolutely batshit off the wall kind of idea, uh, which in this case seemed to have been inspired to a degree by Elvis, uh, who had just died the year before and, um, and, uh, you know, of whom Bob was quite fond, just like he is very fond of the, you know, the American standard singers as we're aware of at this point. Um, just like he was fond of Woody Guthrie and the protest singers at the beginning of his career. Like he's, He's always throughout his life kind of built on the achievements of uh, and imitated, consciously imitated, um, you know, the style and the projects of those who came before him, even if some of them seem to suit him a little bit better than others. Like, um, you know, he's he's uh, he's uh, always been interested in kind of drawing them into his own project and, and like, you know, fucking with them. I think it's also worth sort of setting the stage for what the conventional wisdom is on this record um, and, and contextualizing maybe the the direction that we'll take our conversation here. If I could just very, very briefly read this all music review, which uh, I know that I had internalized quite a bit myself and had, had kept me away from Budokan for far too many years. Uh, this is sort of the prevailing idea, I think, that um, that most people seem to have of this record which goes as follows. On his third live album in a mere five years, Bob Dylan brings the big professional showmanship of Street Legal to the stage, recasting recent and classic favorites into that album's image. And he does that over the course of two albums, no less. It's a bit much even for the diehards, even if moments work pretty well. Nevertheless, those moments work because of pizzazz, although those are the very moments that will make most long-term Dylan fans bristle, which of course raises the question, who is this for? The dedicated aren't going to be dazzled by the slickness, and the casual fans certainly aren't going to pay much attention to a live album from 1978. Interesting historically, perhaps, but only marginally. Well, see, right there is uh, there, there's a statement that I, I kind of I take some issue with, is uh, that the the diehard fans are going to bristle at the at the slick presentation. I think that time has has shown that um, to some degree, all you can really hope for with with a Bob performance is variations on the songs that you know. And sometimes the way that Bob will perform a song can bring out like a new angle to it. Yeah, I think that Bob treats these songs as like lyrically, some of these are perfect objects and. So the attitude is kind of like, well, I can do whatever I want to this and it it will still have this like integrity that can't be destroyed. Bob kind of pushes that to the limit here. And I think as a a fan that cares, uh, you would find that interesting and something of value in that. But I see their point too. I, I think that leads us to the question... What I think is the the real question is like what are what what's the purpose of a live album, right? Is it is it to is it to faithfully reproduce 
these songs that you are familiar with in a, you know, just a, a liver, warmer, more spontaneous setting? Or is it to play with and fuck with these tracks in exciting new dimensions or new ways and, and give you something more out of them than what you can get just off of the one canonical album cut? And I get, you know, I mean, I guess there's there's something to be said for both of those approaches, but I I I think I much much prefer the the second approach there, and I think that's exactly what Bob is doing here. Um, you know, if you want to listen to like you know the the you know, perfect canonical uh, like a Rolling Stone, it's it's right there for you. It's on it's <laughs> side one track one from yeah. from Highway sixty one. But if you want to listen to uh, you know a, a different version, one with horns and weird backing vocals and stuff although that track we'll we'll get into this more later that track is actually not terribly different from the album cut on Budokan Uh, but but there is that it is still you know there's a new version for of it for you here and and on other songs on this record which we'll get into shortly like I think he really pushes that to its limit and completely turns them into something that's almost unrecognizable from the original version the the thing about that all music review what the diehards that that reviewer references are bristling at here is the level of uh irreverence and like playfulness on this record creeping in in ways that people find sacrilegious to the the perfection of certain songs in their eyes right it feels fucked up and like wrong to a lot of people who would call themselves you know serious dylan respecters <laughs> to listen to certain songs done in in these strange and very era specific ways but haven't you been listening like how ha- have you not caught on at this point like that's what he does like that's that's just what he's doing as an artist uh for since those things came out it was he was only doing them like he did them in 66 in 66 he never did them that way again well i think i think that what he was doing in 66 even lines up with what's going on in budokan like like i think you're totally right there like you know the 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 bob respecters uh, or whatever uh, do treat a lot of these songs as like holy texts basically and and they just cannot be you know, improved upon or, or should never be changed from the, from the, you know, original kind of energy that was in the room in, uh, in Columbia records in yeah 1964, 65, 66 or whatever. Or, or at the Royal Albert hall uh, at those yeah. performances. I think though that the, the way that they feel about those songs and like to give credit to that point of view, I think some people feel, and, and something I'm sympathetic to is like that, those songs in their 1966 form still hold up better today than anything, any other possible version. Like that something about those being so straightforward uh, was actually like what made them feel so deep and timeless. The people who get butthurt about Budokan are, are people who feel like, he's, you know, fixing something that's not broke with, with this. But I, I think that they are basically just missing out on, on a fun experience by having this, um, overly stoic attitude toward music that had plenty of irreverence and humor in it to begin with. 
you're not even really embodying the spirit of of Dylan, like the artist that you think you are when you're so tied to those original versions. Like, I don't think that he thinks of his own songs as sacred. Yeah, I I, I would say, in fact, you're like completely uh, missing the point. And you're, and you're like, you know, kind of uh, the exact sort of person that Bob is actively uh, not fighting against necessarily, but actively like rebutting in, in his approach to these songs in a live setting, if you are that kind of person who is uh yeah is is offended or or um unimpressed with this kind of weird presentation that we get on Budokan back e- even back in 66 like you were saying like Bob took all of his acoustic tracks and electrified them like he completely uh played against audience expectations at that point and some people loved it but you know people called him Judas and shit um and uh and so eventually you know that became expected of him and so people knew what to expect from him later and and that became kind of the you know the yeah the, just the basic expectation of stuff and he and uh, before the flood for instance that's that was kind of my uh, my bone to pick with it is that he was so willing to give people what they wanted and give people what they expected in a live setting, which he hadn't been in 66. But Budokan, I think, really is a return, sort of a return to that spirit of, of 66 um, in that he is just blowing all these songs up and starting over fresh and giving people a completely um, inspired and un- unexpected reinterpretation of them. And again, like you can you can argue and, and say it's it's better or worse or whatever. Um but uh, this is, I, I think this is like the, uh, the of, of the three live records that we've talked about so far, I, I think this is far and away the one that is most true to the, the spirit that Bob has, uh, has let guide him throughout his career. The willingness to just completely um, play against expectations and be completely different every time that you see him. So that's kind of my, um, my piece on Budokan here at the beginning. Do you have any other, uh, any other preliminary thoughts or should we dive into the record to some extent i do wonder if the way that bob is approaching this material is a really self-conscious attempt to preserve something about these songs i i kind of have wondered at various points like if bob's sort of resistance to just doing the songs the way they were uh on on the records from the 60s, um, if, if maybe he does, to some extent, feel that there's something like really magical about those that he would not want to draw the comparison to. And maybe, I think he was, he's probably right to some extent that uh, there's not a way for him to go back in time and be that guy again. And so he's sparing us all the disappointment in a way by, by not attempting directly to do that. Uh, if back to the point of what a live record is supposed to be, I think the, the stakes are a little lower for a live record. So like, why not let this one be different? Uh, especially given that. Right. I think, I think that is a great, that is a great point. Like he, as we talked about on street legal, right? Like, I think it's clear that he wasn't he wasn't firing on all cylinders creatively uh, the way that he had been just a couple of years before 
uh, at this particular moment in time. Probably, you know, in large part due to, uh, you know, his, his personal, uh, you know, <laughs> this, this, these were the eras of, of writing songs like New Pony, uh, for instance. And so, um, so yeah, I think you're totally right that he, he probably wouldn't have been capable of, of, you know, living up to the expectations of the original shit if that had been what he attempted to do. And so, uh, so on Street Legal... He decides to kind of gussy up the subpar songwriting with this, you know, this whole new uh, live band arrangement, and uh, and then he takes it on the road with with the Budokan tour as well. Instead of trying to, um, you know, uh, turn the clock back by 13, 14 years or whatever, he's just going to uh, head in a completely different direction that doesn't have any sort of pre-existing expectations or preconceived notions about what this kind of show should be, how it should make you feel. Uh, and what it should accomplish. So, so yeah, I, I, you know, you 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 very well may be right. Like this, this might have just been like a savvy kind of defensive move on Bob's part to um, to avoid appearing as if he were over the hill or past his prime or whatever um, at this moment in his career when he kind of did seem to to be on his on his uh, on, on the slope downwards. Um, but that said, you know, I, I'm still. Uh, psyched about uh, about all of these just wacko fucking bullshit versions of these <laughs> amazing songs. All right, Lynn, uh, let's, without further delay, begin. Uh, side A of Bob Dylan at Budokan. Track one, Mr. Tambourine Man. Mr. Flute Man. <laughs> Right off the bat, that's the first word that I have in my notes. It's uh, it's literally Me too. flute exclamation <laughs> flute. Point. Yeah, same. Um, great song, great version. The other thing that I have noted is um that the the guitar is very like 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 terminally chill and like strum that strum is so like doped up. It's just like. <laughs> It's so relaxed. Yeah, it, don't, it sounds like uh, Mac DeMarco's playing the guitar or something. Yes, yeah. Plus that, that breakdown that, that happens right after the chorus, which sounds kind of like just the way you are by Billy Joel. Well, I didn't make that connection, but yeah, you're right. That's Bob is taking uh, taking uh, inspiration from Long Island's finest at this point, which came out in '77. That that Billy Joel yeah, song it could be just just interesting. Just probably not unrelated. Probably has nothing to do with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, right off the bat, we can we can tell that things are going to be very different on on this record and the way that things are going to sound. It it does like the arrangement, and the the melody and stuff. I think is actually pretty close to to what you get with the original Tambourine Man. Um, obviously, it's it's gussied up and it's kind of sped up a little bit, maybe one point two times or something um, faster than the original cut. Um, but uh, as far as like the Budokan interpretations go. This one's actually one of the more faithful, uh, I think, that we're going to get on this record. As as different as it sounds from the original, it it is pretty, you know, straight faced, straight laced, um, and not uh, not radically reinvented. Um, even still, you know, you can you can tell right away that it's uh, it's a whole new 
it's a whole new world. I will say... It's a whole new bag of flutes. It, it's, it's, it, it, the existence of the bag of flutes is itself, is in, its, <laughs> in and of itself new. Um, but I will say, like, if there is a strike against some of these songs, and, and I think Tambourine Man is an example of one of the ones that would apply to, for me at least, it's that Bob kind of goes in and out of seeming engaged vocally. Um, you know, in terms of his, uh, his, his singing, um, there, there are some really amazing, uh, Bob vocals, uh, later on this record, um, that, that I am just absolutely in love with, but they, they come and go, I, I think as, as, as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, some of them, it, it just sounds a little more like he's kind of going through the motions and reciting something that he is not feeling the same way that he, he once did. Uh, and I think I think Tambourine Man is an example of a song that kind of sounds like that to me. Although you might have uh, yeah. a different opinion, Evan. Well, I, I think that you're right in that it sounds a little bit more like he's singing a song rather than in, in the original, where it really feels more like he's telling this story. Uh, it feels a little bit more active as like a poetic uh, lyric, where... Here it is a little, just just slightly geared more toward the melody and just a chugging along on a vibe. Right. Um, I think we should probably pick up the pace slightly just because we have so many of these to we get. We do through. have some to get through. Um, but yeah, uh, the uh, the the Budokan project is is clear right from the start with Tambourine Man. Um, Going on to a song that maybe is a little more radically reinterpreted, rearranged, uh, we get to yeah, Shelter from the yeah, Storm. Yeah, we get to the second song on the record, the second straight appearance of Shelter from the Storm on a live album, and the second straight completely just off the wall, insane uh, version of it. Yeah, the harmonies here are like kind of criminal. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like them? Came in from the wilderness. A creature void of form. <laughs> Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. That's pretty good. Down on down. Sort of like that. Yeah, there's kind of like a boom, ba boom, just a, a, a sort of loping bass. Um, it's the, the harmonies kind of make this one unique. Unique is, uh, is a word. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. If I pass... The next song <laughs> is uh, Love Minus Zero, No Limit. Sure is. Uh, one of the... Flute minus, flute minus zero. Love plus flute. Yeah. Um this this has such an interesting feel. Uh it's got like is it it's an, it's an extension of what what you hear um or or I suppose because this was before uh Street Legal it's a proto version of what what you you get vibe-wise with that record which is I could only describe as kind of like if like a medieval court band uh, like a, a medieval troubadours got together and then there was a guy with like bongos 
<laughs> and they were trying to play Astral Weeks. <laughs> I see that. I think that's uh, that's about as as accurate of a description of the vibe that we get on this song as as can be had. Definitely a Van touch. Um, yeah, I think he was to, to this. He was clearly kind of cribbing from the Van Morrison playbook at this point. Which going back to what what we know about his uh, about Bob's. Uh, in, inspiration on, uh, coming from Elvis and his passing. Um, yeah, it's no. I, I I don't think that we're crazy to to be hearing maybe a little Billy Joel here, maybe a little Van Morrison there, because apart from Bob doing these reimaginings just to satisfy his own creative urge to to mix things up, what what it also does is I think it it propels Bob into that. Uh, arena, um, so to speak, of of big time rock artists, and uh, in in 1978, the people that you're trying to be on toe to toe with are are those guys, Billy Joel, Van Morrison, and uh, the, their ilk. Um, not to put Billy Joel and Van Morrison yeah. on the same in the same creative box here, but. I think that Bob is he's not he's not dumb when it comes to like what are people into right now? How can I throw some of that on? Right. Yeah, the people the people that are going to a Bob Dylan show in 1978 are the, yeah, are are people who are also going to Billy Joel's shows and uh Van Morrison shows certainly. Um I mean it, obviously punk had kind of uh taken off in full and and was really coming to its own at this point. Um and that was just a completely distinct kind of scene from from everything that was going on with Bob um, at this at this point in time as much kind of crossover as there had been earlier right like you know he tried to get Patty Smith to come along with him on on Rolling Thunder and he tried to get Springsteen as well not that Springsteen is punk necessarily but you know he was definitely kind of more cutting edge cool back then um, you know Bob, Bob is really diverged from the the most uh, groundbreaking new um, portions of the uh, music scene. Uh, I also think it's a, it's a good point. It, it, this is something that sort of was surprising to me on Budokan, uh, you know, knowing what we know about Bob and the way that he engages with his audience in live shows today, or, you know, uh, doesn't engage with his audience in live shows today, I should say. Uh, he seems more uh, sort of friendly and open and, and almost kind of like um, showman-like uh, on this Yeah, record. there's some banter. Yeah, banter, exactly. I wonder if that has anything to do with uh, just Bob feeling a little bit more comfortable being in a foreign country rather than like being in America or or the UK for that matter where the relationship with with the crowd might be a little more prickly. That's that's definitely possible. I I do think that it is interesting and it's no coincidence that this is well, it, it's no coincidence that this is the kind of set list that is played for uh, a Japanese audience. Maybe Bob is um, feeling especially liberated here to do these versions this way at this time, uh, probably in, in part because he's in such an exotic location. Things probably feel really different for him. Um, I think his whole life from what we can gather is probably pretty, pretty different from what it was just a year or two before. Maybe this is Bob embracing a, as close as he would get to punk is kind of being like, well, 
yeah, punk in real time anyway. Here we are in, in 78. Yeah, yeah. Bob just saying, hey, like, I'll just flip the tables over and we'll we'll do it this way. Yeah. It's a weird combination of, of Bob being flippant, maybe, to some degree, but also trying to be more commercial. I think that friction colors this whole thing. Definitely. Yeah, it, it is a weird, it's just a weird moment in time um, in in general and in Bob's career in particular, I think. And that's, you know, why we get such a, like a, yeah, a record that has so many tensions and, and such conflict, I think, um, sewn into it. I'm, I, I am for what it's worth glad to sort of get, to get this weird kind of like cloying, um, you know, uh, eager to please version of Bob on a record. It's it's not it's not a part that is natural to him. I think you can you can kind of tell that he's got some weird, weird like rehearsed sounding kind of banter and dialogue from the stage. Um, yeah, and uh, but like it's you know it's 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 great to get like this peek behind the curtain at this particular moment in time that he was going to you know once again consign to the dustbin of history just, you know, weeks and months after this tour had ended, you know, and, and he moved in a completely different direction after this. I was, I, I read once, um, I, I forget where, but uh, that when Bob was organizing this tour, whether he was asked to come, I don't not I don't remember. Um, but I know that he was asked to play certain songs and he agreed to do it. Right, yeah. So I think which that, is like to- I was... also totally out of character, but it, it leads to this uh, to to maybe pointing toward Bob being uh, res- very respectful to the the chance to play in Japan and and to um, show his music to a an audience that he's never uh, played for before that he's was willing to take that and just say, okay. And maybe you could read the fact that he's doing them all in this goofy way, um, with relatively levels, relative changing levels of goofiness. Uh, maybe that was like his one concession. It's like, yeah, I'll play the songs you want me to play, but I'm going to play them this way. In yeah, well, you'll you will. It's like a monkey's paw thing. Like you, yeah. you will get get what you've asked for, uh, but in a completely fucked up and and uh, unexpected way. And uh, um, that that is especially clear um, to me. Maybe not as much musically, but something about the uh, the next song about Bob playing "Ballad of a Thin Man" in this context is pretty bizarre. Yeah, because the the sarcasm and like the venomous quality of of Bout of a Thin Man, which is kind of like to my mind a song about the people at his peak of relevance in the '60s uh, who were constantly badgering him, and like basically it's it's a song of making fun of squares um, in the media um, in in a very like pretty pitiless fashion. Um, it, it's just different to hear that now when he's, it doesn't really have like the context on its side in terms of adding emotional intensity. 
Yeah, this is the first, like, the, through the first four tracks, this is the first one that kind of falls flat for me. And and I think you're totally right. Like, it doesn't... Bob, at this point, like, Bob Bob kind of is Mr. Jones to a certain degree. Like, he, he doesn't know what's mm-hmm. going on anymore. Um, and he seems confused and sort of frightened and uh, out of his element, which is which is exactly uh, the kind of person he was writing about on this song, you know, years before. And uh, and yeah, I, I don't think that his heart is really in it on this uh, on this version. And and we'll, we'll, that that will reoccur uh, a couple times uh, later on as well um, on on other cuts from around this particular moment in time. But the yeah, I mean the, the arrangement for this one is is pretty similar. This is the most kind of straight faced version of a song on the record so far. You know, through the first four tracks, the the least out of left field, the least reinvented, and it's just uh, you know it's 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 fine. I, I it uh, I, it's, a, I, it's a little schlocky. I feel, like there's little, yeah, there's some some cheesy little moments like when when uh, Bob says the line about about clicking the high heels and and the the drummer. Uh, does a little uh i i actually like that they do that they do that again on uh twist of fate a little bit later uh there's a line um here's the ticking of the clock and then you can yeah you can hear the drummer kind of uh uh tap on like the edge of his snare drum a couple times right. or something i th- i think that's cute because uh, just because it's so it's so unexpected like, that's the last fucking thing that you would expect from Bob Dylan in a live set is this weird kind of like you know um, Neil Diamondy like ham ham fisted uh, grinning for the camera kind of approach to this shit but it's like you know it's, it's what he was doing at this moment in time yeah especially this song I think that this the song Ballad of a Thin Man only really works if if you're actually like the bleeding edge critical vanguard artist when you're singing it like if you're not that then the song just kind of lo- it doesn't have its power it is a really specific song to to the moment when it was first played i think it's hard to um it's I think more so than maybe is commonly considered to be the case. Like there are songs of his that have a timelessness to them. Uh, the times they are changing obviously is a song that is eternally relevant to some degree. This one, I I think it actually is more connected to a specific point in time. Actually, I don't know because I don't understand um, TikTok teens. So <laughs> maybe I'm Mr. Jones. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I, I I think that's the thing with Mr. Jones is like we all I think we all eventually become him. Uh, oh, like God. I, I know yeah. I know I feel much more like Mr. Jones uh, than I did when I first began listening to Bob and uh, and I you know, sneered at all of the people around me who I thought were Mr. Jones's, Mr. Jones. <laughs> Mr. Um, jo- yeah, so Jones. You, you either, uh, you either die the sword swallower or you live long enough to live see yourself long. become Mr. Jones. <laughs> well said. I couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> on that, uh, on that note, um, don't think twice. It's all right. Uh, this is the first reggae moment 
the first reggae moment and the first uh the first of many tracks on this album that are really just vibes for me this is the ultimate kind of vibes uh album uh or vibes bob album as far as i'm concerned and uh and i think a lot of people hate this version of the song i think it is vibes and i love it i also do think that it is vibes and the the, the reggae moments of this album are i think the that's it. That's where it really shines. I could yes. have done with a whole live album of, of stuff like this. Um, this one is interesting because unlike uh, another later reggae-influenced arrangement, um, this one is like a kind of hybrid of reggae and sort of like baby prog like not not like do you know what i mean yeah because there's yeah there's kind of the the reggae beat but then then he like there's this little breakdown that's just kind of like ooh, you're doing something a little different here yeah when when he gets to like the end of a verse like it's it's sort of like plodding along on the reggae beat up until the end and then it all of a sudden goes like look at your window and I'll be and gone. I'll, yeah, and I'll be gone. <laughs> yeah. And, and then like it goes back to boom. Yeah, exactly. You're the reason. Yeah. <laughs> Which so, so... Whenever I hear him go back to that part, I think it's, I think of like uh, any number of reggae tinged, like top 40 hits that have, have existed in the last few years. Like, I'm going to marry her anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That <laughs> stupid fucking, I know that song. Oh God. I don't. I don't know that they were drawing inspiration from uh, from the 1978 version of "Don't Think Twice." But no, but um, that's an ancient impulse. You know, yeah, an ancient, yeah. an ancient evil. <laughs> it's as old as white men with dreadlocks. <laughs> uh, you know, for what it's worth, I think that Bob totally earns the the reggae uh, vibes that are going on here. Uh, they don't. They don't. You know, there's only a couple tracks. Sure. Uh, they sure, they sure get the full the full reggae treatment. Um, but and this is the man who wrote Hurricane. I think he gets a pass for to do so. just like uh, Bill Clinton is the first black president. Bob is the first black recording artist. That's right, and um, Joe Biden will be the second black president. That's true. Absolutely. I mean, third. Uh, no, second after Bill Clinton. <laughs> I think you're forgetting one. No, I'm not. <laughs> um. Don't think twice. It's all right. Uh, great song, uh, great version. Uh, Bob Bob could have made a reggae album, and it would have been terrific. Well, he kind of will later on. Uh, will he? Not really, but uh, Infidels has a little bit of that going on. Yeah, a little bit. Um, just a just a dash. Yeah. Uh, next, we've got uh, one more cup of. Uh, or sorry. Oh, we got no. Maggie's Farm. You can't forget that. Yeah, one. no, no. I my notes are written like a ransom note. They look crazy. Yeah, yeah. Next we have Maggie's Farm. God, the vibes keep rolling on this one. <laughs> this version is like some kind of crime. I uh, I'm I'm gonna have to respectfully disagree uh, because I um, insofar as I stand anything, uh, I, I I would stand this version. Of Maggie's well, farm, I think I, I should say that you know at, maybe it's a crime, but uh, you know you know what else was illegal at the time, following the teachings of Christ 
in the ancient Roman Empire. <laughs> so it's good point. Sometimes, yes, you gotta you gotta break the law. Yes, uh, some things have to be done, and uh, one one of the things that had to be done uh, apparently at this show, at these shows, I don't know, um, was this descending ascending guitar line that's basically just like a blues or jazz scale and 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 then you have some mutated version of like what you get on on hard rain which i uh i guess that's it bob's go-to way to mix it up in in this era in within like the late 70s was was stuff where you'd get these like blasts of group vocal and and things like that Right at the end of a verse or like yeah. during the chorus or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you said like blues or jazz, uh, 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 I think it's more. This has a more like disco-y kind of vibe to me, uh, especially with the uh, like kind of the violin. Well, the violin. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it it has both really. It's uh, it's a very impressive uh, rendition of Maggie's Farm. I gotta say, uh, and that and that little that little kind of like it almost sounds like a Nile Rodgers kind of guitar um, uh, uh, touch, like from a Chic record or something. Uh, that. It's uh, it's it's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic full band effort here. Doesn't really sound anything like Maggie's Farm, as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, I think it's uh, it, it's basically a, a completely different song, just with the lyrics to Maggie's Farm layered over top, layered over on top. Uh, but that's fine. I, I think it's uh, it's 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 an insane version, and I am uh, thrilled that it exists because I love Maggie's Farm, the original, and I love this version as well. Yeah, it's got those disco strings. It's got that kind of big swinging dick a guitar solo. He changes up some lyrics here and there. It's also like the, he's uh, uh, kind of moving in the direction of the, or you know, trying to trying to pull. Excuse me, trying to pull like a Grateful Dead kind of thing with this. It seems like because the original Maggie's Farm is like what it's like two and a half minutes long or something, right? Like three minutes tops. It's got to be. And and this version is almost six minutes long, um, and the end the end of the song just kind of he, it it almost seems like he's just like cycling through the same two verses over and over and over and over over again, um, and it's great like you know I I don't get tired of it but it's uh, it really is like stretching this very simple straight ahead you know kind of uh, uh, punk rock song uh, what it was originally into just this you know massive Titanic monster that shouldn't make sense but somehow does yes i would i would say that the original is a sort of rockabilly even well i think the original like i don't think rockabilly really existed as like a as a coherent kind of form uh, back in well neither 65. did punk rock yeah that punk rock didn't necessarily but i i i consider uh you know uh, you think Bob. of maggie's farm as proto-punk yeah, I think uh, I think the entire first side of uh, another, oh, excuse me, of bringing it all back home is basically like the invention of punk rock. Basically, wow, 
but you know that's uh case to be made yeah that's a conversation for another day perhaps because this is <laughs> this is not particularly the most punk rock uh, record ever made um next song is uh the one of one the more, more recent cup of coffee yeah one of the more recent tracks uh, in his in his oeuvre at this point one of the more recent cups of coffee yeah, yeah. Um, cup of coffee it, valley be- the valley below valley below yes which has lost uh, the sort of kind of uh, remember on on desire it's got that sort of vaguely like Middle Eastern Islamic tinge to it or something yeah, yeah. Um, on on this version uh, he's uh, he's maybe jumped the Mediterranean from North Africa uh, onto the Iberian Peninsula because there's a there's sort of a Spanish flamenco uh, uh, feel or vibe to this with the the kind of piano. Um, uh, on it, I, you know, I, th- I think it works, uh, you know, fairly well, relatively well. It's not it's a, okay. su- yeah, it's it's not a, a a radical reinvention like some of the other tracks, um, but it's um, you know, it's it 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 it, it works in so far as it was uh, in so far as it should. I do think it's interesting uh, if we could pause and maybe just unpack this a little further, uh, like the eras of his career that he's mining from on this record, right? Because this is. Like up until now, Tambourine Man '64, excuse me '65, Shelter from the Storm was was a uh, uh, Blood on the Tracks track, obviously. But then Love Minus Zero, uh, Ballad of a Thin Man, Don't Think Twice, and Maggie's Farm were all '65 or earlier. Um, so um, he's he's definitely leaning into this kind of greatest hits reclamation project um, on on this set list. I wonder if that's because he was given basically a list of which ones he was expected to play. Is that what but it was? Do you think? I I, I believe that's that's right. Um. Yeah. Well. I guess. I guess that makes sense. Uh, I wonder if he, if if he, was forced to play, or if he had been given the. I wonder what 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 he would have come up with on his own if he hadn't been given a specific script of songs to play. Yeah, basically. yeah. I think that that's true anyway. That sounds true. I mean, what what what's notable to me is like the the it seems like the older the songs get on this record, the more radically he tends to remake them. Um, so, like mm-hmm. one more cup of coffee, for instance. Um, is a, is a pretty straightforward uh, reinterpretation. I guess "Shelter from the Storm" is is pretty different from the uh, the album cut. Um, but things like "Maggie's Farm" and "Love Minus Zero and and "Don't Think Twice" those are you know those songs are ten fifteen years old at this point. Um, and so maybe he feels less connected to them or something at this point, right? Like they were written by a different mm-hmm. person at a different phase of their life, and so he's more willing to just junk them completely. And uh, and remake them in the vision of 1978 Bob instead of just you know reciting whatever 1964 Bob um, you know put out and, and thought of initially. Um, yeah, yeah. That is, I mean that's as we were talking about earlier. I think that's kind of the the question that pops into my mind when when those things happen is like, is this Bob sort of intentionally um, muddying the water a little bit to? blend those maybe more impressive songs in some ways lyrically sometimes those are like the heavy hitters i don't think anybody's uh saying they're those are minor works but uh if you're gonna mix them up with something like uh one more cup of coffee 
which is a totally fine song, maybe you want to uh, level the playing field a little bit, giving them a little bit of like a, a handicap or something. Sure, sure. My only note on it uh, was bongo solo, because at the end it ends with a, a bongo solo. Yes, yeah, the bongo's very present on this record uh, throughout. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a good vibe. Like I said, the, the ultimate vibes record. Rolling Stone uh, comes next, and it's, like, pretty unceremonious. I think that it it's, like, the opposite of what you hear with uh, the, the most famous live versions of Rolling Stone, which have a really epic lead-up and that famous snare crack right uh, just kind of begins and then you've got uh a pretty straightforward version of rolling stone but one that i think is really uh notable in that here's bob for the first time on on a live record um reinterpreting this song in maybe a little less but the same sort of direction that he you see him at a, a, a recent show. The way that he like will mess around with the syllables and the and the emphasis on certain lines and and phrasing. I think this is kind of like the blueprint for what he would do later on. I can see that. Yeah, I, it, uncere- you, you said unceremonious. I think that's kind of the perfect way to describe it. It's it's not the this one. I think like like Thin Man. It doesn't really feel to me. It doesn't really feel like his heart is in it on this one, uh, and and once again, like it 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 sort of makes sense because you know, like a Rolling Stone is really supposed to. It, it's written from, and it sounds like you know, kind of the, a cry of victory from someone who is on top of the world and is moving past whoever this person is um, that is is on their way down as as Bob is on his way up and and. I think that's kind of the opposite um, uh, thing that's that's going on in his life at this point when he, I guess I don't know if Sarah's on her way up necessarily, but Bob is certainly on his way down. Um, and so, it, so it, it really does kind of have a, a going through the motions vibe to me, even where it's positioned in the set list. Um, I, guess, I guess this album is kind of um, clipped together from two different sets, so I don't know if this is where it appeared in the original set list, whatever night it was recorded. But uh, but yeah, appearing kind of in the in the middle of the first album instead of being yeah the, the Titanic you know energetic uh, show show closer uh, just kind of signals like yeah this is this this isn't this isn't what it used to be this isn't doing what it what it once did and uh, and and yeah it's it's a pretty straightforward faithful interpretation you know more horns on it obviously but not um, not a a complete reinvention the way that uh, uh, some of the other more more interesting tracks on this record are there's a sax there's a sax yes I, I think you're totally right though about um this song feeling like maybe bob is not able to connect with it in the way that he used to right, and right. that's hardly surprising i mean again i'm reminded of like this feeling of specificity that that i i still can't help but shake uh, a, a bit with with like Ballad of a Thin Man and on and Rolling Stone, like these songs seem to have this real sense of like like of being energized by this 
meteoric rise that he was on at that time when those songs were made. Like there's like a real like verticality, a sense of like him actually being on the top of the world as like a young man that is kind of impossible to replicate because that that's just like that that is what what when those songs came about like that was what he was living and there was all this glamour and like the stakes were so high whereas uh yeah maybe he doesn't want to acknowledge that that he's plateaued a little bit and so he he doesn't uh have the fire that used to be right there to access for this song. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's very simply like of, of its time and, um, uh, just like, just like Thin Man is. And so now that we're so far removed from that time, it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, it, it can't really do, do what it did or, or mean what it meant, uh, 15 years before this. Uh, and that's you know that's okay, um, but it 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 sounds like I mean, you know if 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 that um, if it was true that he was kind of assigned a particular set list to play um, on these on these shows, which certainly seems correct, um, this song strikes me as one that he would have left off of his uh, his set list had he had the ability to just design it himself from scratch. Yeah, very possibly. Uh, but that brings us to, uh, I don't know about you, but for my money, uh, the best song on the record. Wow. Not for me. Not for you. Well, for me. I Shall Be Released comes right up as we're getting to the end of uh, album, or excuse me, side, not side one, uh, yeah, record one, album one of the two album set. Uh, I Shall Be Released, as made famous by the band. I still feel like the band version um, on Before the Flood is kind of untouchable because of that scratchy falsetto that it opens with. Like, I feel like it's so dramatic and good, actually. When he goes, They say everything can't be replaced. (laughs) I like that. Uh, Yeah, it's all right. such an evocative line and such a um, sort of vulnerable way of singing it. Where uh, this one works for me, uh, I I wrote <laughs> I wrote that the sax solo just kind of reminds me of like SNL like intro music. <laughs> it's just like Bob Dylan, and you're hearing like the sort of egregious endless sax wailing as you see like footage of Bob like turning from like eating a falafel with his like eyebrows uh, up like right in in the village (laughs) um that reminds me I'm looking forward to discussing uh uh Bob's only ever appearance on the Saturday Night Live television program uh for our our next episode perhaps um but what uh, do you like about this song just this it, version. This sounds like exactly what this song was supposed to have been. Uh, like this is this is the the correct interpretation of it, the correct approach to it. Um, it's uh, it's got this kind of epic um, quality to it, but it isn't. Um, you know, it, it's. Uh, 
it's not it's not like Rolling Stone, for instance, where it's it's got this driving energy and and like snot nosed like punky attitude behind it. This is this is more um, um, like um, at peace with the world and and more kind of um, just uh, like a chiller kind of vibe in general. It's it's not angry or anything. Um, you know, it's it's a mm. it's a, a song of of hope and of acceptance and like release. Uh, well, I guess it literally is called I Shall Be Released. Um, and so just the way that they interpret it here, like that 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 guitar, that guitar lick or riff or whatever um, on this cut that doesn't it, it's not there on any of the other versions on on the uh, the before the flood version or the album version from the band or the original Bob demo version um, or not demo version. But, you know, the original kind of acoustic version that Bob recorded on one of those greatest hits albums. Um, that, that guitar line makes it for me, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it, it's got almost kind of a spiritual quality to it. I think, um, the, the way that they interpret it here, um, and it's not like a Christian song necessarily the way that, you know, the Christian albums are going to become, uh, explicitly Christian, but it does have a, you know, like a spiritual kind of, uh, undertone to it, I think. And, and Bob and, uh, singing along with the backing vocals here, it, it just, I get this kind of well of, of emotion uh, inside me somewhere. And um, I don't know. I, I think it's just like a perfect kind of interpretation. Um, I, and I, I think like this, the reason that it succeeds um, or the fact that it does succeed indicates like what was what was working for Bob at this particular moment in time. Like these classic touchstones of the 60s, you know, your Rolling Stones and your Thin Mans don't really have the, the energy or the spirit behind them that are necessary. But these kind of um, more, not uplifting necessarily, but just um, more generic sounding almost, um, I Shall Be Released. Like it doesn't have any of those virtuosic, you know, uh, lyrical turns of phrase that, uh, that we all know and love from Bob. These, those kinds of songs I think really were working for him at this particular moment in time and with this kind of vibe and band. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to this a little bit later also, but like Forever Young, I think on, on the end of uh, the second uh, yeah, album, yeah, I think also like super super work. I, I think you're you're right about that. Actually, I I think that there are songs that have that fall in that sort of more universal yeah. Yeah, approach that's a good, to to good lyrics. Like another one that I love from which I think was written around that same time um, as I shall be released was uh, when I paint my masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I believe that was when was that song written? Um, I. I, I I don't know when it was written because it uh, you know when songs were written doesn't necessarily bear any relationship to when it was recorded but probably yeah I don't know sixty seven eight nine something like that maybe something like that but again yeah uh, a song that I think has aged really beautifully and I one that I just sort of think of as being somehow connected to I shall be released in terms of like that sweet spot of of uh, sort of like a vaguely spiritual tone. Uh, so yeah, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. This is, uh, this is the, the high point for me. I think this song alone makes the whole Budokan experiment worth it. Um, I've got to listen to it again because you're talking it up so much. Yeah. You know, don't, uh, don't let me talk it up too much because then you're going to be disappointed. But uh something about it i don't know it just have have a drink or two and then like you know feel kind of uh feel kind of emotional that's exactly that's what i mean okay good uh maybe maybe it'll work for you more then 
What what's the next number? The next number is the only street legal track that appears on this All right. uh, on this. We've record. got a little a little bit of banter too. Or Bob goes, uh, "Here's an unreleased song. Let's see if you can guess which one it is." Right. That's funny. Uh, Easier love in vain, which not necessarily the weakest track on street legal, but one of the weaker tracks, I would say. I prefer the album version. Yeah, this one is like I, I guess I don't know that I prefer the album version necessarily, but I. I well, you I, just don't like this song. Yeah, it's it's just not. It doesn't really do it for me. It's it's uh you know it's it's like the worst possible funhouse mirror version of Positively Fourth Street or something like we covered last week, um and so it uh it it doesn't necessarily work any better uh, in this presentation. I, I think that maybe it sounds a little bit better than than those weird mixes from Street Legal, um but um. Yeah, it's uh, it's not the one that I would have picked from that album, but I do think it's it's interesting, right? Like this is clearly one of the more venomous songs that he included on Street Legal, uh, one of the ones that that spoke most explicitly about what was going on in his life and and with Sarah uh, between he and Sarah at this time, and so it, it's sensibly it's interesting uh, that that this would be the one song that he's writing around this moment in time that he chooses to play live. Um, there are certain things about the lyrics that I I. I don't know if they're totally antagonistic. I think there's kind of more of an air of a self pity to it than than being outwardly aggressive. Um, like there's the line like, "Do you understand my pain? Are you? Am I like? Can I count on you? Or is your love in vain?" So there's a Kind of, there is some vulnerability to it. There is. But it's kind of couched in a uh, sort of smugness, too. Yeah, earlier, like the second verse, I just pulled up the lyrics, right? Are you are you so fast that you cannot see that I must have solitude? When I am in the yeah. darkness, why do you intrude? Do you know my world? Do you know my kind? Or must I explain? Will you let me be myself or is your love in vain? It's like he's literally telling her to just like fuck off and leave him alone in the song. Also, what is the line, is your love in vain? That It's kind of, it's a little tricky for me to just wrap my head around exactly what he means by this. For me, is your love in vain? For like in vain would maybe imply like, is it imp? Does it is it pointless or is or is it against? I don't know. What do, yeah, what do, no. What I mean, does he mean? I think I think that that's it. I think what he's saying is like, is your love in vain? Um, you say you love me, but I need you to love me in this particular way. Uh, and so if you really love me. Uh, will you uh, will you see. love me the way that I need you and want you to love me, or is your love in vain, or can you only love me the way that you love me? It's it's sort of a it's kind of a an unforgiving, uh, you know, kind of selfish, uh, you know, ugly kind of song in, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think it can definitely be read that way. Um, uh, anyways, yeah, the, the one street legal song, uh, and it doesn't make it any better. Uh, and that brings us to, uh, I think, Jesus Christ, just just the end of the first record uh, here, 90 minutes into recording, um, Going, Going, Gone from The Great Planet Waves, um, an album that I think Bob has tended to overlook and, and uh, leave unappreciated, and so I'm glad to see uh, one of its tracks appear here, one one of several tracks appear here, actually. 
kind of wish it was a different track, but uh, yeah, sure. I do think that this interpretation is uh, is is pretty fun, um, and uh, and and makes sense. Um, I think the the backing vocals um, uh, and the horns here uh, are are a fun way to uh, are a fun way to do it, and that kind of like the vocal that he does here, uh, like. I, I'm not even going to try to uh, imitate it here, but is this the one where he goes? I am going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I am going. Yeah, I'm gone. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, but uh, yeah, ne- not necessarily the um, the uh, most essential Planet Waves song. But like I said, the more Planet Waves, whatever song. Uh, from the record, I think the better, as far as I'm concerned. I think that uh, rather than talk more about this song, I'll just use this opportunity to point out that all of this kind of goes by pretty w- smoothly. Like the whole record up to this point, I think, is played really well and much probably to the chagrin of the people who want to hate on this album the thing that keeps it afloat, even if you don't like these versions is just how seamlessly and, uh, neatly they're executed. I think it has to be pointed out like they, uh, they pull off th- these arrangements, whether you love them or hate them. Yeah. The playing, the playing is very tight. Uh, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Like it sounds, it sounds great. And it's, it's sort of surprising almost like that a lot of the players on this record were the same ones that were involved in the street legal record. Um, and that they, that they could sound this good in a live setting. And then, and then street legal could be such a sort of all over the place mix, especially like the original version of it, which I don't know that I've ever even listened to, but, uh, from what I've heard, uh, is definitely a um, a pretty muddy, ugly sounding uh, cut. Um, it, obviously, it's it's been remastered since then, and I think that fixed some of the problems. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that this band clearly this this collection of players had some had some mojo, had something to it. Um, again, whether or not you like the sort of uh, uh, you know, Vegas showman review situation that's going on here, they could they could they could they could lay these tracks down. Yes. Should we should we take this record off the turntable and uh, slide it back into the sleeve and slap down the second one? Yes, we are uh, going going gone with side A. Uh, I mean, d- dis with disc A <laughs> with disc one. And uh, next, we'll have to do the disc two. This has been Jokerman. Uh, at a Budokan. See you in Japan. Well, how do they say goodbye in, in Japanese? Uh, oh boy. Um, I, you know, I'm not even gonna. I, I can Google it. Shalom. Au revoir. <laughs>